What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Passing Downs podcast. I'm your host, Rahul, and I'm here with Petey. Say what's up. What's up? All right, so this week we're going to be doing a review of Week 7 and a little preview of Week 8. As usual, just another another episode of the same. And Petey, why don't you get us started off? All right, let's get started off with um, Week 7 and with... With the first performance from Joe Burrow, Joe Burrow played his best game of the season in this one. Um, yeah, I mean, it started off hot, and it continued that way for the rest of the game against the Falcons here. Um, Burrow looked extremely sharp, uh, targeting 1v1 matchups constantly. Um, the the Every time the Falcons gave him 1v1 on the outside, he was taking it, and they were winning in, in the form of massive explosive plays because... The Falcons were without four of their top corners, I believe. And so that just allowed Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, and Tyler Boyd to roast them alive. Um, Burrow in this one put up a monster stat line, finishing with 481 passing yards on 34 for 42 completions per attempt and three touchdowns to go along with that, along with one on the ground. And so an absolute domination from start to finish. And I actually liked what the Bengals did here with with their route tree. They kind of they kind of just said to Burrow, um, they put him in shotgun for almost the whole game. Only a couple snaps that he took uh, from under center, and so that kind of opened up the offense for him as he was allowed to make checks more easily, see get a better picture of the defense. And of course, that comes at the expense of making lanes for Joe Mixon, but that hasn't come easily anyway. So they kind of decided to abandon that and just pass for a massive majority of the game. Uh, this is what they did down the stretch last year when they when they took off. So if this can continue, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, they can take off once again. And that slow start from the beginning of the year will just be hindsight from now on. Yeah, and... Another thing to look to with the Bengals' offense, they did just go off, but it looks like Jamar Chase is going to be missing considerable time, and obviously that offense is still very explosive without him, but he was clearly a huge piece of that. We saw him coming in last year, so I'm interested to see how Burrow and that offense overall adapts without Chase, who's obviously takes up a lot of attention on that offense and opens up a lot of stuff for them. And moving on from one of the best offensive performances of the week to probably one of the worst, if not the worst, in the Bucks against the Panthers. And looking at Tom Brady's performance, you'd see that his team got absolutely shut down by a pretty poor Panthers defense. And his game didn't really look the best statistically. The team only scored three points, and Brady was 32 for 49, 290 yards, but no touchdowns. And uh, you kind of see it start off ugly immediately and pretty unlucky for him because one of the first plays of the game, Carolina has a lapse in coverage and the safety kind of falls over. And Evans, Mike Evans is wide open on a post route for like, and he had like 10 yards of separation. Brady hits him on the money and Evans just straight up bobbles it and pops it up. And this was a bit of a common theme in this one. Uh, with Brady's receivers not really helping him out in key situations. And I have to say that they have to do better, especially with Brady's, like, at this point in his career, his big playability, 
isn't necessarily where it was earlier in his career. So when they mess up plays like that, it's a huge hit to this offense. And and later that same drive, Brady throws the ball incredibly inaccurately to Godwin on a third and 11, and it's nearly intercepted. Uh, it was only really a dropped pick because Brady damn near throws the ball in the dirt. So that's that was probably his, one of his worst plays of the day. Uh, he follows that later with about nine minutes left in the first. He does have a great throw off his back foot. There was three rushers in his face, and he drops it down his touch uh, to his tight end for a good gain. But the drive gets derailed by a drop by Godwin in Panthers territory. As I said earlier, common theme in this one: his receivers not helping him out. Uh, and later on, his following drive in the second quarter. Brady seems to have Godwin underneath on an out route on a third and eight. But instead of going for the first down, he tries to go deep over the middle to Evans, who didn't necessarily have a whole lot of space. Maybe he had a little bit. It was a bit of a leverage throw. But either ways, uh, the pass didn't connect. I don't know if it was a miscommunication, whether Evans ran the wrong route or Brady just overthrew it, but just sails past their head. And this was just a situation where, and you'll see it pop up later again, where I feel like Brady's being too aggressive in the situation where he doesn't need to be. He just needs to take the first down there, keep the drive going. He doesn't need to go for a a touchdown shot right there. Uh, and then later in the second half, or one of the last drives of the first half, we see Brady's age really come into play, which was also a common theme in this one because it seemed to be a somewhat clean pocket with only Brian Burns really getting pressure, and Brady easily could have stepped up or got out of there because of his inability to move or really shuffle his feet. Brian Burns got a pretty easy sack. Uh, Moving on to the second half, the very first drive on a third and two, once again, Brady seems to have people underneath, but tries to connect to Godwin on a go route, and they don't hit. This is another situation where he just needs to make a play to get the first, and he doesn't need to take a deep shot, especially at this point in the game where it was only one score game at this point, I believe. It's just not something he's got to do. Uh, and then the next drive middle of the third, uh, in the middle of the third quarter, Brady has two amazing comeback route throws to Mike Evans, but the drive gets killed when uh, Leonard Fournette gets stuffed on third and fourth down. And... They got the ball once again in the third. This is another thing about this game. The Bucks defense honestly was not that bad. They gave the Bucks offense a plenty of chances, and they just weren't able to do anything with it. Here again, they go third. They go three and out after a check down on third down. Brady's best throw of the day, in my opinion, does come with about two minutes left to go in the third. He threads the needle in between three defenders and hits Evans in stride on a very risky throw. And at this point, they were a little da- uh, a little bit more down, so it was a little bit more necessary. But, yeah. And overall, with this game, I think Brady just needs to readjust when he's aggressive and how often he does that from his prime because at this point in his career, it's just not something, especially with this team, it's not something he can afford to do. All these drives that get killed because he's trying to do too much, uh, it just can't be happening. 
And another thing, his immobility, in my opinion, is really showing right now, especially in this game. I noticed a lot of his plays were blown up easily or they just messed up his accuracy and throwing motion because of just regular pressure, not even necessarily someone in his face, but just the defensive lineman getting a little bit of pressure on him. And he was just throwing balls in the dirt, messing up quite a bit. And it happens to pretty much every quarterback in this way, but it looked a lot easier with Brady in this one. And most importantly, I don't think the Bucks offense can squander defensive performances like this from the Bucks defense, especially the way they've been playing uh, so far this season. The Bucks defense was a pretty good most of this game, and Brady's receivers just need to help him out a little bit more because in addition to Brady being too aggressive, his receivers also were not helping him out in a lot of these situations. And you need more out of what's supposed to be an elite uh, receiver core. Yeah, I agree with a lot of points you made there. I think that actually the Bucks' offense hasn't been horrible this year. It's just they they seem to want to run the ball on early downs quite a lot, and that puts them in difficult situations on later downs. And their late down execution hasn't been the greatest so far. You look at something like the Chiefs game that they played, and the only reason they had a chance for a large portion of that game was because they basically abandoned the run game, and they just said, "Tom Brady, go go win us the game," and and that kind of that actually worked. And they haven't really used that formula as much since then. So I'll, I'll be kind of looking to to see what happens there. I, I think that Arians leaving has made them lose some of their aggression there, and it's kind of not really the same offense uh, without him. Um, Speaking of an offense that's not really the same without a former coach, uh, let's move to the Titans and Ryan Tannehill. Uh, Tannehill in week seven put put forth a pretty good performance. Um, He had one dropped interception in this game that will kind of not show up in his stats. But other than that, he, he put a pretty clean game, made one spectacular throw in between three defenders to his tight end. Uh, about 20 yards down the field and yeah for, he had to come out of the game as well with an ankle injury which he's going to miss this week's game for and Malik Willis will be starting so that's something to watch but uh, I liked what I saw from Tannehill continuing to keep continuing to execute the offense um, as he needs to uh, without putting the ball in harm's way more than once so yeah a good performance from Tannehill uh, a bunch of positives in this game not too many negatives, just what we want to see from him. Yeah, and speaking of Malik Willis coming in, I can't wait to hear about people talking about a QB controversy the second the backup comes in. I think we've seen that with pretty much every quarterback situation this year. A lot of quarterbacks have gone out, and then the backup has a little bit of success, which a lot of cases doesn't seem like something that can be sustained, and people automatically jump to... Is the, is the starter going to get his job back? So I feel like we're going to see that as well with Tannehill, who's pretty highly scrutinized. I mean, moving, for, oh, for me, with uh, with Tannehill, the, the expectation for me for Malik Willis is pretty low. Uh, I, I, don't, Same I, don't, here. I didn't see him as a prospect that was very ready to play in the NFL uh, when I was doing my draft previews. And so I think that he needs some more time, really, to adjust to the speed of the defenses and to improve his processing. Uh, if you watch any of the preseason, uh, he took a lot of sacks that were bad. He was very, very slow. 
to recognize things from his offense. His time to throw was over four seconds, where the average NFL quarterback is getting the ball out in like 2.7 seconds. So he's a good 50% over league average in the preseason. So I'm not really expecting much from Malik Willis in his first game. So I don't yeah, think. Yeah, neither am I. Coming out yeah. of college, he was definitely like a project quarterback type of guy. And as you said with the preseason, it clearly seemed like in college he was someone who relied on his athleticism quite a bit. What. A lot of other players, especially, I believe he went to like Liberty, so he didn't necessarily have the best uh, competition <clears throat> in terms of defenses he was facing. I think he was able to just take his time with his decisions and rely on his athleticism, worst case. But it's not something he can do in the NFL, so I'm also interested to see how he's going to adjust. But moving on from that divisional matchup to... Probably a more interesting divisional matchup between the Browns and the Ravens. And we're looking at Lamar, who whose team had a big win versus a divisional rival and contender uh, in the division. But Lamar had, honestly, pretty pedestrian stats. I mean, 9 for 16, 120 yards, no touchdowns, and 59 on the ground. And I feel like this is the type of game where a lot of people will look at and say, like, a good quarterback got a grinded out win or something like along the lines of that. Maybe not with Lamar because I feel like he doesn't get that type of treatment, but a lot of quarterbacks would have got that. But me personally, I feel like I wanted a little bit more from him this game. And moving into the game, his first drive of the game didn't come into late, uh, late in the first quarter because the Browns started off with a long statement drive ending with the Nick Chubb touchdown. But with about five and a half minutes left in the first, uh, Lamar throws a perfect touch pass on a go route to Duvernay, who only has about an inch of space, and he puts it on the money uh, for him to catch it in stride and still get yak yards. But a couple of bad incompletions in Brown's territory lead to them getting a field goal. This was, once again, in my opinion, Lamar's fault here. Uh, the following drive was just a quick three and out, once again, just inaccuracy from Lamar but following a great punt return by Duvernay that put them at the Browns 20 later in that quarter uh, Lamar is unable to throw a screen pass around a blitzing defender and once again that kills their drive in amazing field position and they have to settle for a field goal Uh, with about 640 left in the second we do see uh, amazing Lamar Jackson type of highlight play uh, with um, because you have Miles Garrett and Clowney breathing down his neck, and he kind of just flips it off his back foot to Duvernay for a first and more. Uh, he follows this with a 20-yard run right through the teeth of the Browns' defense and another 10-yard uh, scramble, which leads to uh, Gus Edwards' rushing touchdown. Uh, and then moving on to the second half, early in the third, the Ravens get a strip sack and... Uh, Baltimore's offense gets the ball at the Browns 25 and Lamar makes a couple of good runs and a nice slant pass to Bateman uh, in the right window for a touchdown. Their following drive comes early in the fourth where Lamar, funnily enough, actually lines up at running back and runs for seven yards. And usually I wouldn't talk about a play like this, which doesn't necessarily have much impact, but it is kind of funny to see him line up at uh, running back. Twitter had a 
field day with that clip, with the whole Lamar B Twitter meme going on. So that was funny to see. Uh, and honestly, he kind of proves them right later in the third drive in the third when he has an open Bateman for probably a first down and he just sails it. And I believe this was on a third down and that kills the drive once again, leads to a field goal. And then the last Baltimore drive wasn't anything special. Uh, they play good winning football. They had the lead, so they ran the ball. Lamar ran the ball too. They had some simple throws, some check downs, some screens, and just ran out the clock. Uh, it was almost a perfect drive for their situation until their running back fumbles in the Browns' red zone. But the Browns ultimately missed the game tying field goal, and they're in shoe clock and win the game. But overall, how I felt about this is Lamar did make some good plays, some pretty nice, impressive, classic Lamar plays, essentially. But in timely moments, I feel like Lamar was just inconsistent. As I said earlier, like some experts and Lamar fans probably will say this was a good quarterback pulling through for a ugly win or something like that. And maybe not the experts because it's Lamar, but... That's what people may say, but I just thought he was too inconsistent. His accuracy was off all game, and he seemed like the limited old Lamar rather than the MVP form Lamar we were almost starting to get used to. Uh, The Ravens are also play calling really weirdly, in my opinion, when they pass the ball. I feel like they're not really utilizing Lamar's mobility to the best because they're kind of just making him a pocket passer, and the receivers don't he doesn't really have the best receivers and they're not getting a whole lot of separation so he does a lot of the time have to make do with very little and I hope it's not a lack of trust in Lamar because I don't know what they would be thinking if that because he's definitely shown he deserves to be trusted but definitely a weird play called game and I think In order for Lamar to or the Ravens to take advantage of a pretty solid roster they've put together that has potential, uh, Lamar just needs to be better and games like this. Yeah, I agree with what you said there, and I want to kind of add on with uh, how he played this Thursday night football in Week 8. So this was against the Bucs, and the Bucs were supposedly supposed to be a vaunted defense, but... um, once once Mark Andrews went out, they kind of shifted away from what they've normally been doing this season and started to run a lot more RPOs, screen action, um, a bunch of run fakes. And Lamar kind of thrived in that kind of game. Uh, he did make a couple of errors, uh, taking a bad sack on an intentional grounding penalty. And then he also had a couple more sacks where I thought he could have done a better job. But other than that, he was pretty strong this game. No huge explosive plays, but he had one really nice throw to the back of the end zone for a touchdown, uh, and then uh, a smattering of intermediate throws in this game. So if that's what the Ravens' offense looks like going forward, I'd be really um, really hopeful for them to be really good um, in the future. Moving on from one quarterback, or one young quarterback, to another young quarterback with Justin Herbert. And so, uh, man... The narrative on Justin Herbert is flipping really fast um, this year. He's playing injured, and the Chargers are not meeting expectations, which were really lofty for them in the preseason. And so uh, a lot of the blame is going to Herbert. Uh, He did have a bad interception in this game where 
he just kind of threw the ball into coverage. Rarely, you rarely see Herbert make that type of mistake. He's usually very, very careful with the ball, almost something that we've criticized him for. And yep. he forced this one pretty badly. He also had another pass uh, where it was nullified by penalty, but he threw another bad interception, and he's lucky that that one didn't result in a turnover as well. Um, and so you combine that with um, the Seahawks' offense, which Potty will touch on, but the Seahawks' offense was putting points on the board constantly, and Herbert had to play from behind for a huge portion of the game, partially because he threw that pick. Um, that kind of added on to it. And so that's not really his forte. His forte is playing with a lead, playing in close games, uh, partially because of the way the Chargers' offense is constructed. It's not really built to generate explosive plays Quite to quick. get you back in games. So, uh, and then you add the injury to Mike Williams to that, and it was just a really, really rough day for the Chargers to try to generate positives. Uh, and so we end up with Herbert having a pretty mediocre game, not just for his standards, but just an average game in general. Oh, and no. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't I don't know what to expect <clears throat> from the Chargers' offense moving forward. It just comes down to his health, the health of the offense around him, and if the O-line can play any better that, than they have so far because the the Chargers O-line has been very, very leaky. And it's it's pretty impressive to me that Herbert's sack rate is so low. He's been, he's doing a lot to move around in the pocket and get rid of the ball. So I'm very impressed with Herbert's ability to avoid negative plays uh, so far this year. But the amount of positives that they're generating is just not really there. And it's something we've talked about before where we want Herbert to be more aggressive even if it comes at the cost of avoiding those negative plays. But um, yeah, it's just going in the other, it's continuing to go in the direction that it did last year for now. Yeah, I think you touched on it a second ago, but I think a lot of the criticism of Herbert right now is unfair. I see a lot of people online and whatnot kind of talking about stuff like, you know, Herbert, a, a, lot, a big criticism of, of his, the last two years was, that he couldn't win, and then people said, you know, he got this whole team this offseason, and he's still not winning, and I think that's a pretty stupid criticism, considering the situation he's been, a lot of their big signings have not panned out, that offensive line was supposed to be improved, and it's improved, but just not enough, Keenan Allen's been pretty much out all year, and now he loses Mike Williams, Uh, the run game hasn't necessarily been anything to worry about for defenses and on top of that Herbert's been playing injured so I think a lot of the criticism uh is unfair but at the same time uh, a lot of people expected him to take the leap into the like the Patrick Mahomes Josh Allen tier in this season and even compete for him MVP and he was my pick for MVP but that's something that's clearly not going to happen at this point in the season uh we see from Herbert that he may not be in that top tier, but he's still just below. And I don't think anything the Chargers' lack of success has to should take away from how good he's been. As PD said, he's been extremely great at avoiding sacks despite being on a behind a not the best pass blocking offensive line. He's very great at protecting the ball and he's doing a lot with not the best around him offensively. But Moving on from Herbert to his appoint, uh, opponent in this ga- uh, game, who's becoming a staple in our reviews at this point, uh, Geno Smith. And this was seen as the Kenneth Walker breakout game because he put out uh, 
amazing performance. But in in addition to Kenneth Walker, Gino was also amazing st- statistically and in the game. And this Seahawks offense is looking to be very impressive after what was supposed to be a everyone expected it to be one of the worst offenses in the league. But anyways, Gino was solid statistically. He was twenty for twenty seven. Obviously, he leads the league in completion percentage, 210 yards and two touchdowns. Uh, going into the game, his first drive does start out a little rough because he's looking for Lockett. He kind of doesn't look off the under defenders, and Lockett is draped by a defender himself, and he kind of just throws it into coverage. The ball's tipped up and caught by Kenneth Murray for an early interception. Uh he does follow that in the next drive with a very impressive play with about nine minutes left in the first. Uh, the Chargers sent a lot of heat, including a free rusher at Gino, and Gino's able to just avoid him, flush out of the pocket, and finds an open Marquise Good- Goodwin while on the run, while going the opposite way of his throwing arm. And he's still able to find Goodwin forward for a huge gain and puts him in position for Yak. And I think that's something that's given Gino a lot of success this year, his ability to just maneuver in the pocket and use his athleticism and still find people. And he ends this drive with one of the best throws I've seen of his season, probably. It was a pass in stride in the back corner of the end zone with pinpoint accuracy to Marquise Goodwin. It was honestly absolutely perfect ball placement for that touchdown. And... I was very impressed with that throw because I feel like there's a few quarterbacks in the NFL who make a throw with a defender right behind the receiver and it just has to drop in the very back corner of the end zone. Uh, but yeah, after after a Herbert interception, the Seahawks get the ball in Chargers territory in the following drive and they just run a bunch and score a touchdown. Uh, this has nothing to do with Geno but shows how Gino does kind of get breaks in a sense due to a very good rushing offensive line, and I think that's very scary for the uh, the Seahawks offense, as I said earlier. But once again, the uh, Chargers turn the ball over the following drive after a strip sack, and the Seahawks get the or uh, get the ball at the Chargers twenty-eight. And this was a rare poor drive from Gino because. He ends up holding the ball too long on a third and down when I feel like he had a couple of guys underneath, and he gets sacked, and it forces a field goal. Uh, and then in the last drive of the first half, Dino caps a good drive with the absolute dime to Goodwin down the left sideline, putting it on the money and in the air only where he could get it. And this was another throw just in stride on a go route that I feel like very impressive. Uh, it's a very impressive throw, and only a few quarterbacks, in my opinion, make that throw as well. And just to reiterate something I said last week, but it's just further proof how bad J.C. Jackson was because he got mossed by Marquise Goodwin. And I don't think Marquise Goodwin has done that to anybody his whole career. But <laughs> moving on to the second half, uh, Geno's gonna gets a few chunk completions to lock it for pretty good throws, but... They have bad blocking in Chargers territory, and it leads to a sack and a f- forced another field goal. Uh, but this drive does take up most of the third. They're doing a lot of just uh, clock management, running out the clock, getting short throws. 
good winning football, essentially. Uh, early in the fourth, the Seahawks do get pinned at the two, and they give up a safety. Uh, but the following drive, and the following drive was a rough one for Gino, where he almost throws a pick on a pretty obviously covered out route to Goodwin. It was a pretty easy pick, and it was just dropped by Asante Samuel Jr. He just couldn't come down with it. But I think it's mistakes like this that are holding him from, like, the elite tier of quarterbacks for me because, I mean, he's definitely in the conversation right now, but he just can't make plays like that. That could be game-breaking if the Chargers did take advantage. Uh, The rest of the game kind of went with the Seahawks just running out the clock and the Chargers trying to cut the lead, taking long drives, doing it unsuccessfully. So overall, Geno played very well, in my opinion, and this offense is looking really scary with Kenneth Walker's rise, as I said. Uh, he does have to cut on a little bit on those game-changing mistakes, but it's not something I've seen a whole lot this season from him to be like for it to be a narrative. And overall, he's been very accurate, so nothing really to be worried about, I think. But even in this game, other than a few bad throws, he was just incredibly accurate. Uh, He's also making highlight plays left and right, which you don't expect out of Dino coming into the year, but he's doing it, so props to him. And he's doing a great job at not only playing within the offense, but playmaking, which you usually don't see out of these guys who are, like, supposed to be bridge quarterbacks almost, which we expected out of Seattle and Dino, but... I don't know what they want to do with him anymore. It does seem like he has a few good years left in him. And, yeah, I'll just end it. He's definitely been one of the better quarterbacks of the year. Yeah, I agree with what you said there. Yeah, I agree with what you said there with with Gino. And I think that when we do our Pro Bowl balloting uh, in a couple weeks, uh, he's probably going to be on there. Uh, Probably not a spoiler. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, and moving on to another very impressive quarterback performance in Patrick Mahomes versus the Niners. Uh, Fun fact, I did go to this game, and it wasn't fun to watch as a Niners fan, that's for sure. And it was even sadder rewatching this and seeing Mahomes absolutely torch us. Uh, That Chiefs offense just smoked the Niners defense. It had Niners fans leaving early and heartbroken and just... Yeah, just a sorry performance. I couldn't believe what I was seeing out of a defense that's supposed to be one of the better ones in the league, but clearly not today. And the stats back up Mahomes' performance as well. He was 25 for 34, 423 yards, three touchdowns, and one pick versus a pretty elite defense while healthy. And it was healthy this game. Uh, The game does start off very rough for him with probably his worst play of the day where uh and he did give us a little the Niners fans a little bit of hope here on the first uh drive he tries forcing it to Sky Moore for whatever reason even though Sky Moore was clearly covered and Gibson uh has dives and kind of hits the ball up and Tolanua Hufanga grabs it uh it was just a poor choice from him I don't know what Mahomes was thinking here but it only went up from there because that was probably his only big mistake, in my opinion. The following drive, he throws a check down to Kelsey, which is a play you guys all probably saw 
in highlights or whatever where Kelsey leaps over Hufanga. And then Mahomes follows that with the rolling left and throws an absolute sidearm laser to Hardman for a huge gain. And he makes another very tough tight window throw uh, and makes it look very easy on that one. Uh, And it sets up Hardman for a little flip touchdown with him running across the formation. And that was their first score, first of many. Because early in the second, once again, he kind of just nickel and dimes his way downfield, just finds the open man and makes the easy pass. This is something we do, we didn't really see out of Mahomes in previous years, but this game he really showed how he's improved on that aspect of the game because the Niners decided we're going to take away the deep pass and not let the Chiefs beat us like that. And Mahomes just took what we gave him and just made it look easy too. He just went downfield. He just flipped it. Flip it to his open receiver 10 yards every play. It was uh, very impressive for sure. And it ends on a 25-yard end around from Hardman for another score. Uh, he doesn't get the ball left till uh, – he doesn't get the ball again till one, one minute and 30 seconds left because Sky Moore fumbles and then Jimmy G gives the ball right back in classic Jimmy G fashion. <laughs> it was one of the stupidest picks I've ever seen in my life. Oh, but – even with a minute and a half, it gives Mahomes too much time because he comes in and he finds MVS deep on a crossing route and drops it in the perfect spot right in front of the safety uh, and right in MVS's hands. And that gives them 50 yards, completely flips field position. And he throws another back shoulder fade to Juju right after on the money for another 20 yards. And it almost ends in a touchdown for them. It should have. Uh, Mahomes rolls right and throws a dot in the corner of the end zone with 11 seconds left, but his running back for some reason decides to chop block Bosa illegally. So it ends up in a missed field goal, but very impressive drive with only a minute and a half left from Mahomes for sure. And then second half is where things really took off and got ugly for the Niners. Uh, after a big, uh, return from Pacheco, that got the ball to the Niners 30. Uh, the Chiefs score on a big touchdown run from CEH. And I think it'll, I don't want to give Mahomes credit for everything, but I do think this huge run, especially coming from a bad back like CEH, was a result of the Niners just being so scared of the pass. They just didn't stop the run. And I feel like you saw that a lot in the second half when the Chiefs were running out the clock. But... It it was it was a bad performance from them for sure. Uh, and moving on, middle of the third quarter, he has another one of those classic, extremely impressive Mahomes highlight plays, where he's hit as he throws and he kind of just flings the ball downfield while getting what would have been a sack, and it was still on the many to Kelsey who makes a leaping grab. Um, on the same drive, the Chiefs are stuck in a third and twenty, and this is really when. You know, people got upset at the Niners' defense because a third and twenty, and people check it. Uh, the Chiefs check it down to Jarek McKinnon on a screen, and they still manage to get it, and it leads to an easy Mahomes touchdown throw. And I couldn't believe what I was watching. But after the Niners bring the score to within five early in the fourth, and Niners fans get a little bit of hope. Mahomes responds immediately with a deep shot right away to MVS on a streak. 
after Charvarius Mord essentially just lets MVS walk by him. I'm not sure what he was doing, but it was a super lapse in coverage, to say the least. And it was just one of the easiest 57-yard connections I've seen. It leads to another Hardman touchdown on the end around. Uh, and then the following uh, Niners offensive drive, the Chiefs get a safety, and that kind of puts the game away. But Mahomes still decides to rip the hearts of all Niners fans out once again, where he finds Juju wide open in the middle of the field with no one around him for about 10 yards on all directions. I'm not sure what happened there. And he still runs it for 30 yards, breaks our safety's ankles, and just runs in for a touchdown. And that was when you really, you really thought things were getting ugly because that play was pretty bad as from a Niners defensive point of view. And at this point in the game, Mahomes ends up getting benched because the game was out of hand. But overall, this game, I don't have much negatives to say about Mahomes. He just proved in my eyes that he's the best quarterback in the league. Uh, And I think he's had more games like this than anyone else in the league so far. And, yeah, that's about it. No, yeah. I don't know what you have to say about this, BD. I mean, of course, it was pretty a pretty impressive performance uh, outside of the the first pick that he threw, and then there was a decision in the red zone where I didn't like it around the goal line. Um, and uh, I, I also want to spoil another pick for our Pro Bowl rosters. I think he might be on there. Uh, yeah, maybe, to, maybe. Maybe. I'll, I'll consider it. Uh, moving <laughs> on to our final, pre, our final review of the week, we have uh, a quarterback returning from injury to Otungvailoa. Uh, I was pretty excited to watch this one because I've loved watching the Dolphins offense when Tua has been in. It's just it's just a great, great blend of scheme, uh, talent at receiver, and quarterback execution where Tua's anticipation, accuracy, and timing have all fit perfectly with what Mike McDaniel wants to do, particularly on these uh, glance routes, um, digs over the middle, um, slants, just stuff in the RPO game where Tua has always been excellent. And now Mike McDaniel is maximizing that with uh, incredible play calling, great design. And um, the the addition of Tyree kill is obviously massively boosting this Dolphins offense. But uh, this game was not fun to watch if, if you were watching for a good Tua performance, because he was atrocious in this one. Um, he had, what is it? Four dropped picks that I said were his fault. And, None of them showed up in in the box score, but it, it was it was a bad game for Tua. There was also one that wasn't his fault, really, uh, but it was a bad throw that kind of got deflected and gave the defender a chance at the ball. So um, there was still a lot of positive plays for Tua. He threw a bunch of them uh, down the middle of the field uh, with accuracy, with anticipation. We've seen that uh, a lot this year, but it's it's look kind of looking like uh, if Tua can avoid. Those those turnover worthy plays, those big negatives. Um, this off, Dolphins offense will be a massive, massive. Uh, they'll, they'll be able to put up massive numbers f- for the year. Um, it's kind of the opposite of what uh, I expected of Tua when he was coming into the league, because I thought that uh, his his style would be a little bit less on on the side of uh, positive explosive play generation and more on the side of uh, avoiding negatives. But it's looking that like. Uh, he's going to need to work on avoiding those negatives because his decision-making isn't really up to par yet to 
where his fellow draft mates like Justin Herbert, like Joe Burrow have been. Uh, so looking forward to seeing Tua improve his decision-making in the coming weeks and uh, excited to watch the Dolphins offense some more. Yep. I, I agree with everything you said there. And I guess that wraps up our reviews for week seven. And then we'll head straight at, right into the previews with week eight with PD with Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, uh, Trevor Lawrence this week is going up against uh, the Denver Broncos in a home game against uh, in London, I should say. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing uh, how he plays. He's been very up and down, overall kind of mediocre this year. I'd say, and now this is a really tough matchup against the Broncos defense with Patrick Sertan, who can basically eliminate Trevor's top option, uh, whoever that may be in the game. You can just stick Patrick Sertan on him and boom, he's gone. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking to see how he kind of adjusts to that, if he can spread the ball out uh, and make plays with his legs kind of, because I think the Broncos secondary is so good that it'll allow for the Broncos to get home um in the pass rush, and if he can avoid those sacks, those negative plays, uh, I think he could have a chance. But I'm not going into this game with high expectations for for Lawrence because the Jaguars don't have a singular number one who uh, who they can just say, okay, Patrick Sertan would occupy him, and we can let the other guys uh, take advantage of their matchups. It's not like that for the Jaguars. So um, I think. I'd look. I'd look for Christian Kirk to to get most of the matchup with Patrick Sertan, but it, it would really just be whoever Trevor is feeling that day, and it's it's going to be up to him to make adjustments on the fly like that. Right, right. It's going to be a tough matchup for him for sure. And looking at another young quarterback who's got a tough matchup upcoming this week, you have Justin Fields going into Dallas in this one, and. As of recent, Justin Fields, in my opinion, is starting to up uptick be, uptick his play a little bit. He started off the season a little bit rough, and he's still not the best, but he's definitely improving. And I think this is still going to be a tough matchup for him for sure because uh doesn't have a whole lot of weapons around him, and the Cowboys' secondary this year, in my opinion, has been pretty solid. So I don't know how much separation his receivers are going to get. But most importantly, I'm looking for him to use his legs a lot in this one, especially just in the pocket, because the Chargers, I mean, the Cowboys pass rush led by Michael Parsons is going to be in his face all day. So I I need uh, Justin Fields to move around in the pocket, maybe flush out of it a few times, and essentially play make in this one, because I don't know how much... Uh, the Bears are going to have success playing within the offense. And obviously this is a tough, it's a very tough thing to ask Fields to do. But right now in the situation the Bears are in, he kind of has to. Uh, I do think they're going to rely on the run game a lot in this one, as they have in previous weeks, because Khalil Herbert and David Montgomery are proving to be a pretty good one-two punch for that team. And even with the bad, not the best offensive line, they're still able to run the ball somehow. And I think the Bears definitely have a better chance at running it with, into the teeth of the Bronc, uh, the Cowboys defense rather than trying to deal with their pass rush. So a big thing Justin Fields just needs to do, uh, I know PD hates the term, but honestly, 
He just needs to be a bit of a game manager in this one if the Bears want to have success because any mistakes he makes, a good team like the Cowboys will capitalize. But if he can just do his job, let the run game take its effect, they might be able to steal one against a clearly better team. Yeah, um, I'm not I'm not so hopeful uh, as you are. I think that the... <laughs> The Bears offense versus Cowboys defense matchup is a huge advantage for the Cowboys, and I'm, I, I would expect Fields to take uh, a few bad sacks, maybe throw an interception or have a fumble in here. That's not very good. Um, I'm not going in here with high expectations. If he proves me wrong, that would be pretty impressive. Um, yeah. Going to the other I, side I'm, of the ball. I'm with yeah. thinking the same. Yeah, okay. Uh, going to the other side of the ball with Dak Prescott. Um, he came back last week, threw a few balls into coverage, but – uh, for the most part, he was generating positives, and he looked okay. I didn't think that he was particularly hugely impressive, but um, he did enough to where I think that with the Cowboys' defense, with their supporting cast on offense, that's good enough to win against the Lions. But I think um, to that that's not something that can sustain itself every week because um, he did have some good luck. He threw a couple balls into coverage, like I said, but neither of them were intercepted. So um, in order to have a chance every week he's got to be better than average and against the bears that's probably not the case but it's very possible that the luck swings the opposite direction and he has a couple more turnovers than he should and so i think that playing more careful um should be uh, on his agenda and he has to make sure to maintain those explosive plays down the field uh, against the bears because bears um they do have a strong offense in the sense that they can generate explosive plays on the ground with their quarterback and their running game. And so that could make uh, life a little bit difficult for the Cowboys overall. And so I think, yeah, he just has to play a little bit better than he did last week in order for them to have a consistent chance. Uh, What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, overall about the Cowboys right now, I feel like they do have a very good roster. They've shown that they could win even with Cooper Rush And Dak coming in hasn't been at his best. And I do think this team has a lot of potential. So I just want to see Dak play at his best because this team can do a lot. I feel like they're going to crumble in Cowboys fashion. But, uh, yeah, Dak's just got to be better in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, Moving on from Dak to another young quarterback with Kyler Murray. Um, Kyler Murray going to... Uh, Arizona, or I'm going to Arizona, <laughs> in, in Arizona, uh, going up against uh, the Vikings this week uh, on the road. Um, I'm just looking forward to seeing if he can keep up what he did last week uh, on Thursday night, where um, he was going to Hopkins a lot, and that was clearly good for the offense. Um, and I think that the Vikings will probably have a better game plan for, for him than the Saints did, because the Saints uh, notoriously play a lot of man coverage and Hopkins cannot be covered 1v1. So I think that uh, the Vikings zone might be a little bit trickier for Kyler than uh, what the Saints did, but I don't think the Vikings really have the talent to match up with the Cardinals offense. And so I'm expecting an explosive day out of the Cardinals. Uh, of course, my expectations for the Cardinals have been very high and they have disappointed me uh, in the weeks that we've talked about previously <laughs> in the podcast. Yeah. But uh, I think that the addition of Hopkins uh, gives them a much better chance to generate those explosive plays and avoid the negatives than they did in the past. 
Yeah, for sure. And speaking of Hopkins, I was someone who was, I'd say, a bit of a doubter with Hopkins. I didn't think he would come back and be the receiver one he was in that first game back because last year and maybe even a little bit of the year before, we saw Hopkins go on a bit of a decline. But if Hopkins can come in and play the way he was, uh, one thing I've been preaching all year is that even though I'm not the biggest Kyler fan, I can admit that he clearly needed more help and another big playmaker who can just he can rely on to just get open whenever. And if Hopkins can be that guy, that Cardinals offense is going to look a lot scarier. Uh, but moving on to the next quarterback, uh, looking at Derek Carr, who honestly his job has gotten very easy over these last few weeks because. Josh Jacobs, seemingly out of nowhere, has taken one of the biggest running back jumps I've seen out of a fourth-year player who was declining for the two prior years, like, ever. I don't think I've ever seen what I've seen out of Josh Jacobs. I'd kind of written him off, and he's come in and proven everyone wrong. So, looking into this one, I think they're going to feed him once more. I believe the Saints' defense is one of the worst uh rushing uh preventing defenses in the league so I think that's going to make Carr's job a lot easier as well as the fact that I believe Marshawn Lattimore is out and even their cornerback too Adebo is questionable currently so I think uh Devontae Adams is going to have an absolute field day in this one I don't think anyone even Lattimore was going to be able to hold him and with him out uh, I think that Saints secondary can't match up at all with him. So I'm looking to, for Carr to expose that matchup a lot. And I feel like this is a very win- winnable game for the Raiders. And it's all going to come down to whether Carr can use the weapons that, you know, people in previous years have said he didn't have. This year he's had it. He's got Devontae. I believe Waller's coming back healthy this week. This is Carr's chance to expose a bad secondary and use his weapons and just take advantage. Yeah, I agree with what you said about Carr. I think that uh, him and this offense is finally finding um, a rhythm that they can uh, base themselves off of. And that's doing wonders for Carr, who has just become an efficient distributor, uh, which is probably the right role for him. Uh, yeah. Moving on to someone who I also think should be an efficient distributor, but is not playing that role right now, and that's Mac Jones. Uh, coming off a game where he was benched uh, unnecessarily, I would say, uh, for Bailey Zappi, <laughs> and we saw that uh, that did wonders for the Patriots' offense. Uh, they became a, a much better team and, and won the game, right, uh, against the Bears. And so, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and and so I think that this is a bounce back spot for. Um, for Mac, because it can't really get much worse than being benched, right? So um, I think stuff that's uh, going on with Mac Jones, he's been reckless with the football, which is not a trait that I saw from him uh, really at any point in his career. Uh, and so I think it might just be a bad stretch for him. It's possible that he's pushing uh, what he can do because uh, what the Patriots had last year wasn't sustainable, and he might have been hearing about that from his coaches or from the outside. But I think that if he can get back to playing the way he was last year, where, uh, I mean, I guess the situation around him was definitely better, but he he was making better decisions with the ball and the offense was humming more so. Um, it, it would probably take the offense being better for him to get back to that mold of player. 
But I think that he himself can also be more careful with the ball, uh, be better about throwing the ball away instead of putting it into coverage. Um, I think that this is a better opportunity for him. Uh, and I think that on the other side, like Zach Wilson will probably put the ball in harm's way uh, against the Patriots. And so uh, he, if Mac can take advantage of that by just uh, continuing to be smarter with the football and uh, just matriculating the ball down the field rather than uh, forcing the football into coverage, I think that would be much better for him. Yeah, for sure. And moving on from one Jones to another, uh, looking at Daniel Jones in New York. And I feel like he's getting a lot of hype, to, so to speak, from this season. Because obviously the Giants are 6-1. and one, And a lot of people, obviously and rightfully so, were speaking bad on Daniel Jones after his previous year's performances. And a lot of people are saying that Daniel Jones is proving everyone wrong this season and really leading these this team to being as good as it as it is. And I'm definitely not as high on Daniel Jones based off of this season. Or not based off of this season, but as hyped about his performance this season. Because I feel like that Giants team has just been it's been bad so many years and they've just been collecting talent. And this year it's kind of coming together. And granted, I will give Daniel Jones the some credit where it's deserved because he's toned down his uh, inefficient play and his mistakes a lot this year. I don't think he's throwing as many picks, uh, not fumbling the ball as much, and because he's not turning the ball over as often, they're still able to have an effective offense. And he's also improved in his play a little bit. At this point, he's veteran quarterback, so... He's been in the league long enough to adjust a little bit. I don't think he's been incredibly impressive, but he is doing his job on a good uh, Giants team. And looking at this matchup against the Seahawks, uh, I see a lot more of the same coming with Daniel Jones because the Seahawks are also one of the worst run defending teams in the league. And they have potentially the best running back in the league this season in Saquon Barkley. So with that front seven being as weak as it is from the Seahawks, I think the Giants are just going to take advantage with their run game. But at the same time, that Seahawks secondary has looked pretty good with the emergence of Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant. That Seahawks secondary is young, and they go after the ball, and they're fast. So it's definitely a tough matchup for a quarterback. And... I'm looking to see if Daniel Jones can avoid mistakes because this is definitely a winning, winnable game for the Giants as a whole. So if Daniel Jones can continue to just uh, not make mistakes and keep them in this game, I think that'll be good out of him. And I, th- I believe he has guys like Wandale Robinson coming back, so I'm interested to see uh, how he connects with his new weapons which he does have a decent bit of with the Giants this year. Anything, yeah. Any thoughts on him, PD? Yeah, I mean, he's looked much better than he has in the past, in these past few weeks, and I think, uh, I mean, the trajectory is looking good for him. Uh, we, we, I'm not sure if we touched on him, uh, but not much. We, we, in the offseason, we haven't touched on him too much, I guess. Uh, but Brian Dable last year and the year prior, 
was doing great stuff with Josh Allen, and some of that has carried over to Daniel Jones, where uh, his ability in the run game has been a massive driver of the Giants' offensive efficiency. And so, um, yeah, it's fun to watch the Giants' offense right now, which is something that I never thought I would say before the season started. So, yeah, we'll yeah. see what look that looks like. Yeah, for sure. And moving on to our final quarterback of this episode, we're looking at Aaron Rodgers. And that Green Bay offense has looked absolutely down bad this year because uh, they really have nothing going for them. That offensive line is looking porous. They're not giving uh, Rodgers the time he needs whatsoever. Uh, That receiving core is abysmal, probably the worst in the league. And now Alan Lazard's out as well. I believe Petey sent me a tweet this week where they're looking to shop for A.J. Green before the trade deadline. And that's when you know things are getting bad, when you want A.J. Green on your offense because he'd actually help it. So, And even in the running game, they're just not nearly as effective, the one-two punch, A.J. Dillon, Aaron Jones. I think they've been playing as well as they were last year, but the how bad this offense has been is just holding them back as well. And looking into this matchup, it's not looking pretty either because they're going up against the Bills defense, which has been one of the best side, one of the best defenses in the league, both defending the pass and defending the run. So this game, I, I know for a fact Rodgers is going to face a lot of pressure and the Bills are able to get to the quarterback without blitzing. So he's going to have a lot of people dropping back in coverage with his receivers, as I just said not being the best. I don't expect a whole lot of separation. If the Packers want anything to get going for them this game, it's going to have to be Rodgers just running around through the pressure and just making tight window throws all game. That's really the only hope they have, and that's not a recipe for success. So I don't expect a whole lot out of this Packers offense. I think Every year, you really don't want to count the Packers out because Aaron Rodgers is obviously Aaron Rodgers. Whenever they suck to start the year, he always figures something out, pulls through, gets them in the playoffs. But I don't think this is the year for that. This offense is too bad. Uh, He looks unhappy playing every week, I feel like. I just see him upset because his offense just isn't going the way he would like it at all. And the one target I feel like he actually trusted, Alan Lazard, is now out. So I don't even know who he's going to be wanting to throw the ball to. So nothing pretty at all. Yeah, I mean, the Packers offense is not looking good at all. It's just nope. it's just bad stuff uh, with the Packers. I mean, I, I, mean um, I saw a stat today where it said that Aaron Rodgers has uh, – Aaron Rodgers' teams have won their last – 13 games in primetime, I would not expect that streak to continue. I think think the last loss was in that 2018 game against the Patriots, um, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, Interesting. So I think this game could look a lot like that, where Rodgers was really struggling uh, in that game, and he was kind of trying to force the ball uh, to guys that weren't there, passing up on open receivers. I mean, this is a, this is a problem we've seen for Rodgers for a long time. Um, uh, you look back in at the 2015 season, um, Rodgers was kind of he was without Jordy Nelson, who tore his ACL early in the year, and mm-hmm. he didn't trust his guys to make plays. 
even when they were open and he was forcing ball into coverage. It was just not a good look. And I think Rogers' level of play has been pretty similar to that year uh, so far. And uh, But this time I'm not sure how well he'll bounce back from it uh, in the coming weeks and maybe even next year if he's still playing. So uh, not a good look for the Packers right now. I, I don't expect them to win this game. And yeah. Yeah, same here. The And one thing I didn't even mention is that the Bills are coming off a bye, off a week's rest, an extra week to game plan against this offense. Yeah, it's over for them. I expect this to be one of the least fun primetime matchups we've seen this season for sure. But yeah, that's about it. That wraps up our uh, pretty much all the quarterbacks we wanted to talk about. Any final thoughts, PD? Nope. Uh, just looking forward to another week of football. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Nice to see you next week. Yep. I need my Niners to bring bring it back together this week because if we're if they're three and five, the playoffs are not looking good. That's that's all I'm looking forward to. We need a win. All right. <laughs> Make sure you guys subscribe, like, do what you need to do on any platform that you're on. Uh, as always, please leave a review uh, if you like what you're hearing. Uh, that's all from me. That's all from Potty. We'll see you next week. Take care. See you. Thank you.